smoking on Kendrick? Cause my top five is Drake, 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 Drake. The Sock Jake Sneaker Podcast is pushing positivity. Welcome to episode 61 of the Sock Jake Sneaker Podcast. You can follow me on Twitter at Sock Jake and on Instagram as well. First off, I want to thank everyone who bought the Alachi Green Sock Jake socks and also the Black Friday deals I had for the socks. You know, I tried to do a real discount on those socks at 50% off and not the usual 20% off nonsense. But really, I do appreciate everyone who buys those socks, who supports me and this podcast. If it's not clear... This is a one-man operation. There's no editors. There's no producers. There's no one writing a script for me. I think of the things I want to say. I make an outline. I record it. I edit it. I do the cover art. All that kind of stuff. So when you buy the socks, you're supporting me. You're supporting an independent voice in a sea of people with agendas and allegiances. I don't have any of that. So here the credo is that thou shall not make or take part in the bad arts. And that's not what we do here. We don't do the bad arts. We only bring you the fine podcast art, as Jesus and Marrow used to say. Anyways, on today's episode, I have an interview with Snobat co-founder Lois Sakani. She's also a Wall Street analyst reporting on the sneaker industry for Wall Street. We talk about the current challenges faced by Nike and Adidas, Nike's problems with marketing and distribution, Adidas's problem pushing terrorist culture on North America, and how both brands are basically looking for the next big thing. We also, of course, discussed the state of women's streetwear, and we also first discussed some recent news like the James Whitner story, Lois's thoughts on attending ComplexCon, and the sneakers you see people wearing at Erewhon Grocery Store. Lois is a friend, and I recommend you follow her, follow Snubette, and subscribe to her Substack newsletter as well, too. There's always some interesting industry points in her newsletter, and the stuff that she's saying in there, she's informing Wall Street from, and as we talk about in this episode, she's informed by sneaker Twitter and by things that we say as well too. So I'll add a link to the description of this episode. And just a note that this episode is recorded on November 24th and published on December 1st. So topics like fear of God and Adidas's pricing and things like that, we don't discuss, but still a good episode. Lots of good details in this episode. So I hope you enjoy. Okay, my guest today is a sneaker analyst for Wall Street and also a co-founder of women's streetwear blog, The Snobet. She also has a substack for Snobet that I recommend everyone go subscribe to. Please welcome to the show, Lois Sakini. Lois, how are you? I'm good, Socks. I'm, I'm so excited to be on your podcast. I'm a little nervous. This is a, a, a big deal for me. So thank you so much for having me. I appreciate it. How are you doing? No, no, no. Don't need to be nervous. It's an honor to talk to you. I I'm okay. really respect your point of view, your perspective, how you word things and how you say things. And I think more people need to hear and see what you have to say. Thank you. Okay, so we'll cover some of the, the stuff that you do for Wall Street. But we're, I thought we maybe we could start off with some of the more recent news that's come out. Well, maybe we'll start off with the, the James Whitner story. I'm not sure if anything new has come out recently or anything like that, but what are your thoughts on there? And I know that you had some insight related to Antoine Freeman and him being in New Jersey, closer to you know your area of New York City. Yeah, I think that was kind of overlooked. He's a founding member of the foundation. Uh, the foundation is a showroom, really. And actually within... 
especially the neighborhood stores, but to some degree the urban chains, they're actually a pretty important distribution network. Uh, they rep uh, Pharrell's brand, um, Kappa, a few others. So they're meaningful. I was talking to a buyer last week about the fact that he was arrested and he was saying that this that they mean something to us. When I'll give you an example, when Under Armour wanted to try, this was a few years ago, when they wanted to make a foray into the Urban Channel that quickly failed, remember with ASAP Rocky's collaboration, mm-hmm. he, um, they, they hired the foundation to do that. So they're known to be experts within the channel. So it's no small deal that he was arrested too. Yeah, no, that's interesting. Like, because if he's helping out like BBC uh, ice cream and these kind of brands, it's like mm-hmm. those are the types of these smaller brands that kind of need more of this um, help and engagement to kind of get to the next level. If if a partner like that goes down, it does have a bigger impact. Yeah, I'm not sure what impact it will have right. on the foundation. I would imagine the foundation, just like every other vendor within the sneaker channel right now is probably being challenged by the economy and headwinds. And so, you know, that could have factored into him deciding he needed a better flow of money too. You never know. Right. But, you know, part of the problem, one of the things that came up in the, in the complaint was that they were describing the foundation as a retail store. So. Yeah. uh from from what I read in the talk, it seemed like if they were asking the Brinks truck to back up there and, <laughs> you know, to transport the money, uh, it's easier to tell the Brinks that this is a retail kind of location as right. part of your network than right. this, is, this is my guy who's picking up money, which might cause, you know, red flags to uh, pop up uh, for Brinks as well, too. Yeah. I think that's hilarious that they use Brinks trucks for some reason. I'm like, how do you, what do you do? Just call them and say... I need a Briggs truck. Well, I I mentioned this on my last pod. There, like, there's these big stories about police forfeiture. Like, if you're pulled over and they see that you have a briefcase full of 10k, they can just take it and then go buy a Camaro or something with it. And you right. know, and so right. so it's like transporting a big amount of money, even without TSA or anything involved, just driving it across the the, the states is still a risky business. Uh, from from what it I've is. read. Yeah. It is. Um, so another question is, what do you think Nike will ultimately do? Their usual pattern is kind of just, we'll wait and see. And that's what I'm assuming they'll do. Uh, what do you think? I, I think I agree with you, Sock. They, James is talent, right? And I think they treat talent the same. You know, wait and see uh, if he, you know, this, you know, Think about Travis. Think about any any athlete that's had problems. They 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 like to err on the side of being loyal and not acting too quickly, which I think is appropriate. James, right. as you know, has not been arrested. That being said, it could be behind the scenes we see like a subtle shift in their favoritism. They tend to favor certain retailers over other retailers, and it's very they go about it in a very subtle way. So there's chatter. I think it's pretty much known that James was planning to own a store in New York. So perhaps they don't give him sanction to open that store. Maybe he sees his allocations quietly reduced. 
I have to think, you know, Nike is a blue chip stock. That's how it's considered on Wall Street. There are certain standards they have to uphold to have that status and have favoritism with investors. So they're probably, you know, I think Nike's lawyers have to be freaking out a little bit. Right. That's their job, you know. So let me make this a uh, scenario. This is all speculation on our part. Um, yes. Michael Jordan himself is quite influential, which is quite the understatement. And if he is in tight with James Whitner, what can Nike do and say to Michael Jordan himself? Like, Nike can have some sort of subtle punishment, I guess. But if a Nike employee or an executive has to go up to Michael Jordan himself, how much influence do you think they have over Michael Jordan? I know there's the Wall Street and, you know, blue chip stock and stuff like right. that. But nameless executive not named Phil Knight or the CEO I, like the, just that scenario of someone trying to you know influence MJ to make a decision that he wants let's just say in this scenario if if James Whitner is in tight with Michael Jordan himself you know it's a good question when all of the fallout happened with Michael Jordan's son at at uh, trophy trophy room Trophy room. Thank you. That was such a debacle on Twitter with that launch of that shoe and the backdooring. I thought for sure that would be his last exclusive. And that turned out to be false, correct? Right. No, he's got a seven Jordan seven come out after. And like that could have mm -hmm. been already in the cycle um, right. uh, of the 1824 month production cycle. But there's new ones coming out next year, early next year, apparently. Yeah, no, that's a powerful friend to have uh, in the house of Nike if you're buddies with Michael Jordan. This is a little different, though, than Michael Jordan's son. First of all, it's blood. Right. Blood is thicker than water. And, and James is named in a complaint. So it won't matter if something does happen with James in terms of him being arrested or something like that. So... It's almost though their hand will be forced. But you're right, Sock. It could just mean very little changes because of that powerful friendship. That, that's all I could think is from the Jay-Z song. It's like, what's a Nike executive to a god? Like, what is he, right. what can, what can right. you say to MJ, right? You're not, right. The, you're not Phil right. Knight even. I'm not even sure what Phil Knight can say. Yeah, no, that's very true. And the Jordan brand is considered to be really powerful right now just in terms of its success versus Nike in the recent executive moves they made from, they just announced a bunch of new, like just moving around the chairs where a design team is concerned. And they definitely pulled some people from Jordan over to Nike. And in my opinion, that shows that Nike thinks that that's where like better design and better marketing is taking place on the Jordan sign. So they're moving some of that energy over. Yeah, no, I, I've heard stories about a, a talent drain of designers leaving Nike recently. And mm -hmm. so if they're pulling them from Jordan Brand, and I know even Jordan Brand has had um, a talented designers leave in the last previous years, like Jimon Wong or Frank Cook as well, too. Um, but yeah, no, it's uh, it's interesting to see, like, even those changes are going to have an effect on the product going forward. Definitely. Yep. Uh, so you were also at ComplexCon this last I was. weekend. How was ComplexCon? Mm -hmm. I've gone all seven years, so oh, wow. I really enjoy it. It's very, it's, uh, you know, it's a great way to sort of get a pulse on where streetwear and sneaker culture is at the moment. 
and also attend the talks. I love Aria Hughes. She's an um, editorial director or something like that. And she did a panel that she hosted and I loved the panel and they talked about the future of streetwear. One of the things that is clear is that they're the brands that used to do giant build outs at that show, they've pulled back. Um, Coinbase, for example, it last year and the year before had huge build outs and those were smaller. It's more and... of an NFT con the last year from what I, what I remember than, than it probably was this year. Oh, there was very little mention of NFTs <laughs> right. at all. Yeah. yeah. And so there were spaces on the floor that were roped up and not utilized. Um, so that was a difference. That, to me, again, is an economic issue. I think a lot of companies wanted to reconsider how they were investing in their marketing dollars and just thought, you know, ComplexCon is a, is a want but not a need. And the other thing that I thought was interesting, and this was actually a, a, an observation that came from Aria, is the whole hype energy is not really there. Like in years one, two, three, people would get early access and then run to buy that product. And that just, that's not what's driving people to buy. I felt like there were more people into buying apparel than footwear this year. So with denim and tears. definitely what's that with denim tears being like a big one. Uh, yeah, the and definitely. Stuff. The caps sold out every single one he had on there. Um, at the same time, it's interesting. The denim tears, CPFM, Levi's, collaboration that seemed to be less popular so well it, it's, it's just... hard to put a giant red tag into a fit <laughs> right so it's like they, they can do anything they could put like a crooked smiley face and people will incorporate that into a fit but this giant tag i was just like good luck with that yeah. anyone who wants to do it I like Cynthia Liu as a designer. I think she wants to do, she wants to take more risks. She kind of wants yeah. to do that gamification of fashion. And I think it's worked sometimes with like the furry shoes and the, um, the most recent collaboration that was like a Balenciaga heel. What's the that flea, one called? Flea, flea two. two. Yeah. But I think it, you know, it fell flat this time. Um, and that's okay. You know, sometimes designers are going to experiment and it's not going to work. Yeah, but no, I'm still a fan. especially if you're in that realm, like you said, of doing not weird stuff, but just, you know, outside the norm stuff. Yeah, I got my notice that the McDonald's plush toys are finally shipping. So <laughs> I wonder what happened <laughs> with those. I mean, there must have been some sort of uh, legal delay or the factory delay or something. But I think they said they just couldn't get the, you know, they couldn't get the quality of them correct, you know. Right. The squiggly happy face wasn't squiggly enough, I guess. Right. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, as a, as as personally as a noted complex hater, was the attendance of ComplexCon lower this year than previous years? It looked like that to me, but I'm only just seeing these drone shots on IG, and maybe it's just like you said, the hype is different. There's not people rushing, but how how was yeah. it that way? They don't announce traffic, so it's hard to gauge that they did sell out of all of their two-day tickets but, but i don't know walking around like like mm, definitely it seemed as that the traffic was lower i would say than prior years you know um i remember like in year one year two year three you would walk around and there would just be people in long lines all over the place 
to the point where it just almost felt chaotic and overwhelming. And you and then that didn't happen this year. Like even the line for the CPFM merch, that was never more than say 15 minutes. And right. in years past, that would be like a 30 minute hour long wait. So yeah, no, it's, it's less. Uh, so you had this one tweet as well, too. Maybe it's on Instagram where you went into that grocery store. Is it Irwan? I don't know how to pronounce yes, it. Yes, I love that and, place. And then I'm you a were, huge you, fan. You were looking at people, what their sneakers that they were wearing. Sure. Yeah. I mean, I like to go to, like, you know, I, I, I do, I shoot sneakers sometimes in the Starbucks line. Um, and I thought Irwan would be good because it's like a, high-end Whole Foods. It's got a very sort of premium grocery store customer. And everybody was wearing either Hoka, On, or New Balance. I was a little bit surprised by the New Balance. But yeah, I mean, it's, it's. I think of a Nike exec where to go into that, that store, that executive would be sick to his or her stomach, for sure. Something is happening. And I, I think Nike is is trying to figure out how to stop the hemorrhaging, if you will. But it's definitely, a, it's become a problem, I would say. I think, like, per personally, I think Nike missed out on one, what Hoka and On did was, like, they had this big kind of comfortable sole shoe, right? Like, mm -hmm. that was the main focus, and that's why they were able mm -hmm. to kind of uh, gain a foothill. And I know it came from running as well, too. But, like, you see, I see casually at the mall, the last time I went to the mall, older people wearing Hoka. So it's like mm -hmm. somehow it penetrated to that market where they're like, either their friends told them or something and or they asked mm -hmm. about it. And Nike does not have some sort of equivalent. I know they have the technology for it. I know they have some running shoes that are comfortable like that. But the one that goes for the casual walker type of person, they, I just didn't see it that where they had uh, that version. And, you know, that's like the older market, too. But like you said, in the Irwan store, if there's younger people wearing Hoka, they, they're wearing it, too. Not just they're. It's not like Monarchs where that's just a, a meme or a joke of only older people wearing it. Right. People now wear sneakers from the day they're born till the day they die. So there's no way Nike's marketing message is going to hit all those people. I do think there was somebody who was a little bit higher income who is attracted to like newness and, and technology and performance and that mess, the message that Hoka was sending them and on resonated with that customer and they were ready to try something a little bit different product. I, I you know, for me, there's, uh, for a brand to be successful, you have to have good design, you have to have good marketing and good distribution. That's the three-legged stool for every single brand. And a lot of people talk about Nike having issues with product, but to me, there it's the marketing is is as big an issue, if not bigger, right now with Nike. Like their message is not reaching uh, and that's enough supposed people. To be their they're bread and butter. Like the, right. the, 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 the saying is always Nike's a marketing company that sells shoes. Right. And, and where has that marketing been? Has, have they gotten kind of too high on their own supply? Just thought that the sneaker would kind of market themselves pulling back on marketing or like, I, like I speculated on a recent podcast, the state of marketing has changed now too, where it's, mm. it's not just a single channel monoculture type of marketing anymore. It's, 
it's multi-platform, multi-everything. And what what are your thoughts on that? What do you think the the gap is? I mean, I I agree with that. Obviously, Sock, it's poor leadership too. You know, that's that comes down to talent. You know, um, something's happening that they're not tapping the right people to activate or or the people they have aren't recognizing that this multi-platform marketing. Um, like I watched all the Bama Rush videos on TikTok where they the, the girls who were rushing uh, University of Alabama did a lot of fit pics and whatnot. You know, they were all wearing, again, on Hoka. And what's that shoe with the star? Its name is evading Golden me at Goose. the moment. Yes, thank you. And no Nike in sight. And I'm like, how come that girl isn't receiving your marketing message? Um, why And why aren't you trying to talk to her? So, yeah, it's tough. I just feel like when was the last time you felt like Nike had a marketing campaign where like, oh, my God, this is genius. This is amazing. You know, I think we can think back on the whole Kaepernick period as being a pretty strong period for Nike. And then the Michael Jordan um, documentary was also huge for Jordan. But since then, like, what have they done that feels like it resonates? Um, Not much. Yeah, no, it's different. Like there's the, there's the signature athlete marketing. There's Mm -hmm. the hype stuff like cactus plant flea market, like some Mm -hmm. of that stuff, maybe they get right. And even on the athlete stuff, maybe they, you know, they missed out on the big tennis star, uh, the Coco Golf, uh, and, mm. you know, and, or instead of, you know, they probably were pitching and got outbid by New Balance or whatever. So it's like, um, maybe they didn't put enough dollars into that, in, into that right. campaign. Right. So it's like, and then there's like the, the big campaigns that you're talking about. Like, what is that has have resonated? And yeah, I, I can't think of anything recently either. Yeah. Like Hoka did this whole very dope um campaign i think it had like butterflies and they turned into people running and i was like wow this is when i see a great marketing campaign i think wow this is this looks like something nike would have done you know so right something is lacking there and in the end you know like they're a victim of their own success like they changed the game and were so good at what they did and do that they it drew in a lot of com- competitors um like new balance new balance has become more competitive like on like hoka so there's a lot of you know they're 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 suffering from a lot of people coming at them for the space that they occupy and you know there's all these challenger brands that's i guess the marketing term for people who are in second or third place and they can do that. Like they can make creative campaigns to stand out because they are in, you know, a distant second or third place. And because, you know, people are naturally going to want to not wear the same thing all the time. And if someone like is that connects to you, you're going to want to go to them. And so where I think Nike is failing is like, they are the big fish. They are the big leader and they are not flexing like the big leader. Like maybe they did in 2017 to 2020 or so before that. But recently they're just kind of like waiting in the pool. Yeah, yeah, 100%, 100%. Uh, so that, that kind of leads to what I was going to ask, that you are a sneaker analyst for Wall Street. You yes. write reports that Wall Street reads, and what is that like? Who do you work for? Who are these reports for? Uh, who in Wall Street is reading them? 
Uh, I work for OTR Global. It's a boutique research firm, and we work globally. So we have people on the ground in China and Europe too. And I, I lead the retail team. And the way we put together, say, for example, our report on Nike is that we have people in the U.S., people in China, um, and then again, people in Europe who talk to local buyers or distributors. And we ask about how the brand is selling and then how it's being planned going forward. So it's really, I'm informed by my conversations with, with buyers. And so are all the other reporters who contribute to the reports. It's a journalist approach. So um, yeah, that's how, that's how it works. And then we sell to all of our clients are just, you know, big named investors of these brands. And just for clarification for anyone, if it's not already clear, the buyer in this case is not the consumer or the customer. It's a person at these companies who decides what's going to be on the store shelves, correct? That's correct, Sam. Right. <laughs> okay. Um, <laughs> and so your report does not cover DTC because obviously you wouldn't have access to that information. Um, right. Right. Correct. So it's, it's a retail mm-hmm. kind of uh, overview only. Right. Exactly. And so the, these people that you talked to are like, how are they feeling? I, I did a whole podcast episode about retail. and Yeah, how that was good. I enjoyed that. Oh, thank you. And how it's changing. And, you know, COVID, of course, disrupted everything. And now mm-hmm. the economy, of course, is not helping the matters as well, too. But like, how, how are, have you noticed things changing on the retail landscape and the people that you talk to? I mean, it's consolidating. I think we all know that. As it, you know, these, all of these more prestigious brands, they've narrowed the list of retailers that they want to work with because their name is prestigious. So it should mean something when you go in a store and you see three stripes or a logo. That that should be against a, a, a more prestigious background retail-wise. But I think what we're dealing with in the latter half of 2022 and definitely in 2023 is that Remember my three-legged stool of distribution, design, and marketing? The, the distribution has spun out of control for a lot of athletic brands where there's, they're, they're, they don't have control because there's been an excess of inventory. A lot of product was late arriving in 2022, and then stuff came on time. So there's a big pileup of inventory that retailers had to slog through and discount and whatnot. And because there's excess, there's been more products showing up in TJ Maxx, Ross, and those places. The other new element, which is something that is beyond Nike and Adidas's control, is the whole resale platform where you're seeing brand new products show up at 10, 20, 30% off within days of launching. So... I, I've always I, speculated that those are retailers just by like sheer numbers. Like mm-hmm. like the average Mickey Mouse reseller, like the joke is, oh, they're selling under retail before, but they wouldn't even have access to it unless it was like a shock drop early or something. And then the sheer volume of the numbers, you just look like a number of sold. Like who else could it be other than, as I speculated, either it's the stolen stuff or it's retailer stuff um, selling themselves? Yeah, I agree. I mean, it sell it there at a, you know, of course your, your margin is being compromised because you're having to sell it in at a a lower amount. 
But that's better than sitting around and waiting. I don't think maybe people don't realize Nike and Adidas and other brands that, again, prestigious brands, they have what's called a map policy. It's a minimum advertised price policy whereby you can't take a pair of shoes that's just released and discount it by 10, 20, 30 percent. Nike dictates the degree to which you can discount this product. And even Ab- on Black Friday sales, you'll see it, right? Some stuff uh-huh. is heavily discounted and other stuff is not. Correct. Yeah. So if you violate the map policy, then you risk losing your account or losing access to certain products. So retailers have to be very careful about how they discount. They have to abide by Nike's rules, basically. So this, I think, resale platform is a way around that. And even and that- there's nothing Nike. And there's nothing. What can Nike do? you know, um, about that? What can Adidas do about that? Yeah, they can slap you on the wrist and not give you product, I guess, is what they can do. And but like, who does that help? Right? Yeah, but first, they have to prove that you're doing it, right? Right. From the stories that I've heard, it's like, it's not like the owner or someone has like an official name. They signed up under their own name on StockX, and they're selling it all on themselves. It's either just like how that we saw with the James Whitner, either an associate is doing it. I heard a story from someone from an employee uh, at a store uh, a while back, and he said, we don't get a bonus. Our bonus is the owner will give us the product at the wholesale price that he paid for, and then we can sell it on StockX. And so whatever money we make, that's our bonus. Okay, interesting. <laughs> right? So the, <laughs> the, the store owner there sold his thing for at cost. To mm-hmm. keep his employees happy, who are then happy, and so, like I even that I don't think is happening at a huge scale. Uh, that's just one example, but the like you said, look at the 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 suede Jordan ones that came out. The sheer number of them that were under retail before uh, the release date just showed you that there has to be stores. Yeah, I agree. So I mean, it creates a to me like if your inventory is clean. Then you can see things like an Air Force One selling for higher than retail. But if you don't have control of your inventory, your distribution has spun out of control, then you're going to see Air Force One show up on StockX for $70. So that's created the inventory, the excess inventory floating around out there, whether on resale or in off price, in outlets to Nike owned outlets, Adidas outlets, is really creating problems in my opinion and you know i was thinking about this and and you know thinking about the usual sneaker at least in hype sneaker world not like the the regular stuff that you report to wall street which is more mm-hmm. about like everything usually in the, in the hype sneaker world when there's a slow time and there's a lot of product out there you go opposite you restrict product you make things a thousand pairs of shoes again and that's how you create demand and generate hype and all that kind of stuff. Sure. And then once you do that, you go on and make the down market versions and then you sell big, big stock numbers, right? And so we've been in this big stock number era. I was thinking about this and normally the cycle is you go back to the limited thing. But I was thinking, I just don't think Nike's going to do that next year from, from what I can sense and from what I've seen. I assume that they're going to go keep making big drops and big numbers and then in some other stuff, like the, the hype stuff, like a CPFM or even the ambush ones, where those were probably a few thousand, very limited. And so 
I think they're going to try to do both at the same time, have some drops that are limited and other stuff is very limited, but the product has to be good. And like you said, the three-legged thing of the, the mm-hmm. demand is not going to be there. The marketing is right. not going to be there. And then the distribution is this other problem. Yeah. Well, I mean, that's a question in my mind for 2024. This is when being a publicly traded company bites you in the ass. They provide forecasts and they tell investors, this is what we anticipate we're going to be making revenue-wise. Right next year and so i'm very curious to your point if they will begin to try and draw back numbers so they can get their uh, inventory and distribution under control but again that that's tough to do because there's an expectation that they're going to make a certain amount of revenue and you it'll be harder to hit those goals if you yeah yeah that's what i was saying like a big company has to act like a big company Yes, right? Like correct. they have employees, those employees need things to do. Um, and then you're not going to, it's scaling back is not a thing that most big companies try to think about or do. Correct. <laughs> right. And nor does Wall Street want to hear about that. No, they do not. That, that's, <laughs> that's like, oh, downgrade coming, you know? Right. Yeah. Um, you talked about Nike leadership and uh, I was looking at some of uh, your posts about Adidas leadership as well, too. What do you think about the Adidas' CEO? Boris um, Golden? Golden? Yeah. What's his name again? Bjorn Golden. That's Bjorn, thank you. I always, I forget. I, I like Bjorn. I, you know, he's an athlete. He came from Puma. He understands sneaker culture. He certainly provide like the earnings calls are always very interesting. I think he's a pretty charismatic guy. He understands the space. And I, th- I think that does matter. I just think that Adidas is up against challenges that are similar to Nike. I believe Sock very strongly in cycles. And I think we're coming out of a head to toe athletic cycle, which has been great for Adidas and Nike. It provided them a really great um, tailwind. I think we're in a, a cycle that's a little bit more preppy. I don't, it's always hard to describe it, but something that's a little J. bit... Crew. Yeah. And that creates a headwind for Adidas and Nike. And again, all the things that we talked about before, like On and Hoka and uh, New Balance challenging Nike, they're also doing the same thing for Adidas. So I think it's it's a little bit tough to be a giant legacy brand right now. And then you have the issue with Adidas too, where it's like Nike, they're at this sort of end of era phase with Yeezy being in their taillights, right? Uh, you know, so uh, you I know, think he's great, and they like. I've I've heard he's better liked, of course, um, than Casper, but um, you know, Adidas has challenges too. I thought his um, his comment about he said in one of those earnings call that about Nike about how Nike exports U.S. culture, mm. and Adidas doesn't have that kind of. I don't know mm. if he said ability, I don't, you know, but basically it was really insightful in that the the world wants what U.S. is manufacturing and, mm-hmm. uh, you know, the culture that you the U.S. has. And it doesn't really go the opposite way, maybe in small niches like, you know, Japanese and fashion influence and things like that. I mean, we're kind of seeing this with this whole what they describe as terrorist culture, this uh, sambas and stuff like that. And. Are they counting on that to be this big, huge thing? Like, I, personally, I, I see it as like that small niche thing that 
but maybe I'm wrong on that. What do you think? Is that is this a thing you think that America will be behind long term, or are they going preppy as you as you kind of think? I mean, that's the that's the question of the day for Adidas. Um, because yeah, they have and, all those silhouettes. They have the terrorist culture. They invented yes, basically and, terrorist culture, right? And terrorist yeah, culture no. means like the stands where you when you watch soccer games from. That's where it comes from. Right. Um, they and he and the and and Bjorn said that on a call too. He said that we can own this, and uh, Nike is not going to be able to have an answer to it. And I think that's actually true. They are absolutely going to go whole hog on the Samba and all their other terrorist shoes for 2024. And everybody is asking that question, uh, Sock, whether and what, like, what is the runway for that? Um, I think there is something about the terrorist shoe, especially the ones that made by Adidas that feels right for the moment. Um, the degree to which they'll be embraced by the all-important U.S. consumer, I don't know. There is not a history of, say, an urban customer, a city center customer loving the Samba. So that, to me, would be critical. Um, I think it's, a, it's an unknown right now. What do you think? Do you think that there is much runway for the Samba Honestly, and other terror shoes? I like it's a... It's one, it's not super comfortable to wear all the time, but I know when you're younger, you don't really care about comfort as much. And so, you know, Mm -hmm. that might be just my old man take about that. Um, But in terms (laughs) of. um, Stock is not old, (laughs) (laughs) y'all. There are, um, like, they've done really well with Wales Bonner and things like that. But Wales Bonner is, you know, it's not, it's not going to be J. Crew or Calvin Fine, right? It's a, Mm -hmm. it's designed to be your, your hype kind of demand creation thing for the down market stuff for the gr sambas that you couldn't get right so uh, i think you had a, an insight about that that wills bonner has been such a huge beneficial collaborative yeah. partner for adidas and so, something that only she could do at adidas where something like that somewhere else probably wouldn't it be as effective or work as well mm-hmm. i thought that was yeah no they like i feel like adidas has like you know like has this synergy going right now but i don't know how far that extends like i will say at complex con of course i'm looking at every shoe that people are wearing i didn't see a lot of the kids wearing samba younger people when they want to make a shoe statement they i've noticed they like a shoe that's a little bit chunkier and heavier on the foot i feel like that sort of ballet slipper inspired shoe is a, a trends a little bit older yeah so the other interesting thing, Sock, I'm sure you remember when Adidas had its last comeback, and at that time Nike was back on its heels too, they entered with the Stan Smith and then the Superstar, and the Superstar was em- embraced by young people in a very big way. Then they were able to follow up with the Ultra Boost and right. then Yeezy. So I'm, I'm like, so where's that? Where's the Ultra Boost equivalent, you know? Yeah. You no. need to... Honestly, I think even Nike has to not become just a retro only kind of brand, right? Like mm-hmm. The heritage brand that kind of Adidas is it, is kind of said, and they need to have more hits with new silhouettes. 
And I know of on course. the on their sneakers app, they did this like showcase where they were kind of showcasing all the the shoes that are coming out next year. Mm-hmm. Honestly, I they all look like stuff that was made for people my age. And like, who's excited about a Thunder Max? I don't know. Um, who's excited about a Pegasus thirty five or whatever it was? Um, mm-hmm. I, I just I just didn't. Maybe the Dunks were like the only thing I saw in there that someone who's twenty one would want to wear. That was mm-hmm. that, that's my thought. What do you what do you think about their kind of? Direction? I am not a. I don't know. Like I think there's an obsession with newness, and I'm not right. a member of the Church of Newness. I I think a, a brand like Nike has done phenomenally well by selling mostly classic shoes and takedowns of those classic shoes. You know, going back to ComplexCon, most of the kids there were wearing Nike. A lot of it was dunks as you mentioned i think low profile silhouettes are are what's popular right now because of the way pants are right now the thing that is missing is like an air max 270 that shoe was wildly popular for nike and they haven't found a replacement for it and that's i think problematic they need to like you said they need to have that new shoe that the woman who goes to the gym can wear, um, the woman who goes to Air One to go grocery shopping can flex in. And they, that's what's lacking right now. And I think part of the issue is that when they do come up with those ideas, they're not able to get a whole, like they're not able to get traction because you have Hoka and An taking up space. And then again, I think like the marketing is not where it should be. So Right. I personally think their kind of air stuff that they've been doing has kind of reached mm-hmm. their limit. Like you can't just like this. You this, do. Okay. The scorpion kind of uh, shoe that was this giant air bubble. Like I, I don't think people want that. Like we're, they're, they're trying to make it so you're walking on air. I get it. But it's like there's a limit. And even the 270 ha- had that kind of mix where it, it mm-hmm. hit it with the big one in the back. But there was another one, I think 720 or something reverse, where it was even more air on it. And it just gets too bulky or bubbly or whatever and or then too pricey at that point that scorpion shoe was like 250 plus i think you've heard it folks sock is declaring nike air is dead (laughs) i said i've said i have joked on the podcast show me one young person wearing an air max one and you know in sneaker culture an air max one is a revered silhouette but it's like yeah. it's revered among us who have been in the sneaker world for the last like ten years. But what mm-hmm. about someone who's twenty one or like people like that? Those are the people who are gonna like take over. And if they of don't course. have any association with it, it's just a thirty plus shoe for me. That's what is how I see it. But you know, I wasn't at ComplexCon. Did you see any Air Max ones on people's feet there? Not really. No. I mean, I don't disagree with what you're saying, but it it is. Uh, it's kind of a huge statement to make like that would require a lot of lane changing for Nike if if like air is just not what it used to be. You know, like, like, I'm sure they're still going to have the air bubble and, you know, the Air Max line has been they've brought back a lot of times. The 180 has come back a lot of times, uh, mm. the ultramarine and stuff, and it always goes on sale. The, the Air Max 90 is is a staple that's never kind of really left. So. Air will be around. I'm saying. I'm, I'm just saying about like going in in terms of new models of what they do with air. Uh, going big with air, I think personally is probably going to hit its limit. They probably got to go back to what 
makes an Air Max 90 look good and why people want it like that way. But mm. that, that's just kind of what I think. You know, I mean, you make a good point. Like I think of with New Balance, they um, did the 327. And that shoe has been huge. I see it on people's feet everywhere. I wish I could remember the designer's name because it's a woman. Um, but it's, Is it Stephanie you something? know, mm, that doesn't ring a bell. Mm. Uh, yeah, it's a, let's see if I can type it in right now. 327 New Balance designer. Uh, yeah, I got a, got a like gobbledygook here, not her name. <laughs> Oh, oh, yes, here it is, Charlotte Lee. She's oh, based right. in yeah. the UK. Yeah, yeah, the UK designer, yeah. And um, that shoe is massive, and it still is popular. And I think you're right. It's not anything to do with air. It's just a beautifully designed shoe that people liked. So Yeah, there's other things that Adidas, their issue has always been, as they always kind of shoot themselves in the foot, is how their kind of images in the sneaker world, especially, um, you know, they might have a hit with uh, Ultra Boost and uh, NMDs, and then something goes wrong. Then with the Yeezys, you know, it was probably out of their control. But the the number of sneakers they were making was in their control. So yes, um, right. And so that that's kind of uh, the sentiment. And I don't know how if Wall Street sees it that way, but. But you know, this is just a sneakerhead's point of view. I know they sell must sell a lot of like sneaker cleats and other things where they're mm-hmm. you know they're still I don't know if they're blue chip stock or anything like that. But yeah, no, I just don't know if like they have the runway as we as we called it. Well, I'm I'm gonna go and look at their stock right now. First of all, it's it's not traded on the New York Stock Exchange, so there's like a different sort of interest, if you will, from um, U.S. based investors. But you know. Um, Let's see. This is Adidas. They started the year priced at seventy-five thirty-three, and they're now priced at a hundred and two dollars or thereabouts. So they've had a good year. Yeah. Um, I think the question is for a lot of people: Where can they go from here? Like, are they going to like? There, the question you asked about the samba. And its runway is the question that everybody wants the answer to. And they're also known for the things that you criticize them for, which is to say, like, running too hard with someone, with something, and when they should be treating it more carefully. Yeah. uh, It's interesting, though, Sock. I mean, like, you could say the same for... You could say the same for Nike, say, for example, and Dunk, right? And oh, yeah. yet you don't. But would you criticize Nike for the amount of Dunks they've made? Or You see, like I can do it in this sneakerhead world, right? Mm-hmm. Like they're making too much Dunks for a sneakerhead. Right. But then if I were to put on uh, looking at the Wall Street numbers and stuff like that, then I'd be like, mm-hmm. churn them out make the money right right but i know there's it's gonna come to the point their usual cycles of what they've usually done has told you the pattern of how they'll go forward they'll say this is what we're going to push and if it hits we're going to keep pushing it and if it doesn't hit we're going to pull back and so um maybe now they've started to pull back and stuff has gone on sale and I, you know i've seen air force one white on whites be on sale which is not something for, you would ever for see what? Before. like what's yeah, no, it's crazy. And just to give you an idea, Nike stock started the year at 124. 
and now it's at $107. So it's had, Nike's conversely has had a tough year. Yeah. So I also wanted to talk about the snob that that Mm -hmm. you write, that uh, you have a newsletter and you have a blog as well too. Yeah. And I know it started as like a, maybe a sub blog. I don't know what the term is from high snobiety and you got to spun it off from there. So how's that been? Because I know it's, you know, it's, it's, it's given you a woman's perspective. It covers women's topics in streetwear and sneakers. Mm -hmm. And so um, how did that start and uh, how's it going? Well, we, Samia and I were the founders of High Snobet, which is what you said. It was like a sub blog of High Snobiety. And about 10 years ago, they decided they didn't want to go forward with their sub blogs. They just wanted to narrow their focus on High Snobiety. So we left and started Snobet. And it's definitely, I would almost venture to say a niche following, like we're independent publishers, which is, you know, it's been as tough for us as anybody, you know, online publications have had a tough year. Right. And um, I think part of that is just streetwear, this might be controversial, I think streetwear is basically something it's a, it's a men's category, more or less. And I think there is not a lot of space for women's streetwear. And we have, I would say, yeah, it's a niche following. And, and I think we're important for what we do, but it's niche, again, because it's women's streetwear. So. You know, obviously, I, I, I've seen that and I, I've heard that as well, too. And what's mm-hmm. interesting is that it's almost the flip of what, high fashion is like women's high fashion runs the fashion world it's not men's high fashion at all correct like those are those that's just kind of there to kind of support everything else or whatever right and lately we've seen luxury kind of venture into streetwear almost subsume streetwear itself and so it's like will that switch you know that flip switch in streetwear as well too if it goes that luxury route or do those women that love high fashion like uh, Phoebe Philo and all that kind of stuff. They just only want that. They don't want the streetwear version of high fashion. Uh, You know, I think this goes back to like Virgil's claim that streetwear is dead. You know, in a way, I feel like it's been consumed by luxury to the point where, you know, it's, like I don't. That, this this is funny because this is a, a a question that Aria Hughes had at ComplexCon for the panelists. I feel like streetwear is has to be like. I when I look at Nike, right? I always feel like Nike can be streetwear adjacent, but they can't be streetwear. To me, there has to be a certain degree of independence from being a publicly traded company. So I think you know. Louis Vuitton can be streetwear adjacent, but it can't be streetwear. Same with Balenciaga. I I think for the most part, most women are they don't care about streetwear. Um, it's just it's and that yeah, it's just it's not of interest to them. The culture. I think there is aspects of the culture that are attractive to men. It's almost like there's a sport aspect to it. I'm always so 
you know, amazed by sneaker Twitter, the, the, the degree of knowledge you all have about models and colors and histories and stories that, you know, I'm kind of blown away by it. Like you all definitely inform my work in a big way, your, your sense of how the brands are doing. Sometimes I'm like, why don't big brands tap more into Twitter and Instagram and opinions and conversations? They probably do, actually, now that I think about it, but they just don't know how to sort of translate that. And I'm, and there's something about that kind of discussion and debate that is, I think, very particular to guys. I'm not saying that there aren't women who aren't capable of having those conversations. Obviously, there are. But to me, I feel like streetwear is is predominantly a men's thing and will will likely always be that way too. Yeah, no. Um, you know, everyone wants something that looks makes them look good, like a, an outfit that looks fresh, right? That's where sneaker sure. culture came from. That's where mm-hmm. it's born from, right? And so there's there's things that aspects of it where both men and women want, and th- those are the kind of the the, the common one. I think, at least from the women I know, they don't give a shit about this is ultra limited. There's only 2,000 of these. Whereas maybe the lizard brain in me is like, there's only 2,000 of these, <laughs> right? <laughs> and so, that, like I said, I'm not speaking for all women. I'm just talking to the, the women I know in my life are just like, who cares if there's only yeah. 5,000 of those, right? Um, I mean, and some do, you know, we don't yeah. like, we don't want to paint too broad a brush. I'm sure some people are listening to me feeling sort of, infuriated by what I'm saying. But if you notice, like when Nike or anybody does like a a woman exclusive launch that clearly is targeting women, like say it's a coat or something like that, you'll see the the cadence at which it sells out is very different than the way a a coveted men's product sells out. Like a, a coveted men's shoe will evaporate and you'll need a bot to get it. Whereas if it's just for women, it ta- it'll sell out over a period of two, three, four days. Right. Women have also like different budgets than men. They have to spread their money out further. A lot of times they're responsible for taking care of children. So um, it, it's just a different mindset, I think, both biologically and just realistically, too. So. And I think we've talked about this uh, in our personal discussions previously about some of the, the marketing that the women-based stuff that big brands like Nike does with like Sakai and Ambush mm-hmm. and stuff. And some of it looks good. And some of it just looks not good at all. And this, yeah, this, you, you talk about this as well in, in your newsletter. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think that just goes back to lane switches. You know, Nike has traditionally has marketed to people using sports and women don't follow sports as much as men do and then their design team has been traditionally designing for men so sometimes i see with collaborations they'll create garments that just don't really even make sense for a woman you'll have like this band of fur right around their hips that accentuates their hips which a lot of women aren't trying to do so there's this um lakers ambush jacket that looked like this big like winter jacket that had this giant thing that said Lakers on it. And right. You know, maybe that will sell in LA, but I was just like, I don't know anyone who'd want to wear that. Right. That goes back to marketing, you know, um, like sport marketing is reaching 
predominantly a man, right? So again, you're, le you know, how are you speaking to women? Through what platform are you speaking to women? And it's more challenging because women are more, they don't, they don't have that sort of central sort of point of focus like men do with sports. So it, 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 it's definitely more challenging to market to women. What do you think about Emily Oberg's rise with Sporty and Rich as well, too? You know, at first it was like, we, I, I would crack jokes about it. and But like now you see that she Your really, fellow Canadian sock. Yeah, I know. She's from Calgary, I think, right? Um, okay. But now, like, like I, I shed all those jokes a long time ago. I, I really do respect what she's done. Mm. Um, and kind of, like I said, all the way to making a store in, in New York City. That's challenging and hard to do. Big deal. Um, but I know... You know, maybe not. Maybe not everyone's on her side, but maybe she's won over. Maybe, maybe I'm wrong. What What are your thoughts on her? Um, I mean, I'm I'm always excited to see an entrepreneur create something out of nothing. I have a huge amount of respect for people who can do that. And and I think in Emily's case, she didn't come from much of anything. So I think it's awesome that she's created what she's created. I got into a big debate on Twitter about whether or not she's streetwear or not. And it kind of opened my eyes. Like, she doesn't want to be streetwear. So yeah, I think she said, uh, like, I don't consider myself yeah. that. And, you know, kind of shed the, you know, Supreme, outside the Supreme interviewing people kind of image that she was first popular for. Yeah, and even where she opened her store in Soho, she's on a street with a bunch of luxury stores. You know, she could have opened on the Lower East Side, and um, she chose not to, you know. So she's clearly positioning herself away from um, the streetwear category. More power to her. I do think, like, from a synergy perspective, her appreciation for tennis is going to play well for the brand because, again, we're in this sort of cycle that favors preppier things and tennis falls into that category. But, um, you know, I, I, I hope she does fantastic, Zach. I really do. I don't like that's all I can say. I think it's amazing that she's done what she's done and come as far as she has as a woman who started in a space that's streetwear. Yeah. I, I, you know, she's, she's, I think she's controversial for some, I'm not, I'm not really quite sure why. Um, she's not to me though. So, um, you know, this is purely my opinion, but she is not technically white. She projects in her Instagram stories and stuff and tennis and stuff of, and living in Paris and things like that of a rich white woman, sporty and rich. Correct. Right. Yes. And, and like I said, I know she's, um, a Swedish and Filipino, I believe, or something like that, right? Yes. Yeah, right. And He's so talked about that. Yeah, and so, but that is connecting with people on a, on a certain level. And I know it's not made for me. I'm a forty year old man. There's nothing that she makes, even in you know, she does not make double XL or anything like that. Like she's not going for the size thirteen sneaker buyer, right? She's going yeah. after like we talked about the the, the women who want to look comfortable in the Erewhon grocery store and out, <laughs> out and about, right? Yeah. Yeah, definitely. I mean, I think in her New York Times article, she said that she she mentioned sort of wanting to be like a goop for her generation, I want to say. So that's, that's her target. Um, and that's, I guess, a good comparison because I know a lot of women who do not like Gwyneth Paltrow or goop. 
or right. people that do, right? Like, and so then you're going right. to be polarizing, I guess. Yeah, no, that's true. I think there would have been, like in my younger years, I would have probably, like, I remember feeling very, like, like going through a period of hating Gwyneth Paltrow. I am now at a point where I'm like, I don't want to be bothered hating people. Obviously, people irritate me sometimes, and I have people in my brain that I consider to be my nemesis. Um, <laughs> but like celebrities and things like that, yeah. I, I'm just like, they're strictly for entertainment. I don't want to invest in feeling angry about a celebrity, you know? Yeah. No, honestly, I get it all the time. People will call me a hater. I, I, I've done heaters guides to things. Okay. And or like I hate complex or even I call the right. guy called a hater for hating on James Whitner. And honestly, I just do things for the service of a joke. Like anyone can get it right. <laughs> if it's a joke to be made, if I'm going to extract as much joy out of these things as I can. And because no, the story you were you on. were flying high on the, the the your memes on the the, the James Whitner Newsday were that was a classic day for you. <laughs> and but <laughs> I'm in the unique position where I could do that, right? Right. I saw a lot of people say nothing. I saw the people with <laughs> access to him say nothing. I saw mm. resellers who usually. Uh, you know, get stuff early who maybe perhaps have a connection to him on the on the backdoor side, say nothing too. I have no allegiances to anyone. So if you're going to mm. get if you're going to get it, you're going to get jokes from me and memes from me. So yeah, that's, that's kind of maybe I'm low key in the sneaker world of. Um, yeah, no, it was a hilarious chaos. day for you. <laughs> yeah. I saw I saw Kari say, take this man's phone away, please. <laughs> <laughs> Well, no, I, that's why I, I guess that's a good spot to end this. I think like you definitely have a spot with, with your newsletter. I, I recommend everyone check out the Snubbet newsletter. Go read the site. Thank follow you. her on Instagram and go follow her on Twitter and on Instagram at Lois Sakini as well, too. Thank you, Sock. I really appreciate you having me on here. It's always fun to talk to you about sneakers. You have taught me a lot and I, and you've always been very helpful when it comes to understanding backstories and nuance and things like that. You all are, all of you on social media are incredibly well-informed and all of these brands should feel so honored that you invest time in covering them and analyzing them. Oh, no, thank you for that, first of all. And yeah, I, I do know a couple of people at brands that have said, nice things about me they've said nice things to me in general and they enjoy it but you know it, it just goes to show that you know us in twitter or on social media whatever if you are gaining something from it and then you are reporting to wall street in your reports with that like it, it does go a long way even if it just feels like you're just getting jokes off on twitter no it definitely does you guys are a, like a wealth of information for sure definitely okay so thank you for your time lois and we'll see you next time all right. Bye, All right. Sock. Thank Bye. you.